Hello, everyone. This is John Holtzman, and welcome to our end of the week extra around the world in 20 minutes. JL Ryder is preoccupied, and so it's down to me to get us through to Publius this week. And I want to look at the world turned upside down, the geopolitical ramifications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. History doesn't move at all, and then suddenly it does. And it's always shocking. Uh, the quote, the world turned upside down, comes from the song that the British Army under Lord Cornwallis played when he was forced to surrender to George Washington. And through a series of minor miracles, Washington managed to beat Cornwallis at Yorktown, winning the Revolutionary War and securing American independence. Of course, there had been signs before historically that things weren't going very well for the British. Despite dominating the war militarily, they couldn't subdue the colonies, couldn't capture the key revolutionary leaders such as John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and an increasingly important young Alexander Hamilton. And even the odd victory when it looked like the British were going to finally prevail, John Burgoyne, gentleman Johnny Burgoyne coming down from Canada and being stopped in upstate New York at Saratoga. All this had boded ill for the British, along with the French contributing real money and wherewithal to the Americans. But the miracle of Yorktown is truly that. It took a series of very odd coincidences, Washington fainting up toward Lord Howe and heading down south to fight Cornwallis in Virginia because he saw that he needed to be resupplied, and arriving at exactly the same moment as the French Navy, which won the Battle of the Capes, the most important and unknown naval battle in history, and one of the rare naval battles the French won over the British. They win the Battle of the Capes, and suddenly Cornwallis is surrounded and can't get out, and then a daring night charge by Alexander Hamilton, a true war hero, actually seals Cornwallis' fate. And unable to believe that this had happened to him, being an English gentleman losing to a bunch of country bumpkins, he refused to surrender in person, saying he was ill, sending his second, General O'Hara, to the surrender ceremony, and Washington, also a gentleman to the tips of his fingers and not to be snubbed by Cornwallis, sent his second, General Benjamin Lincoln, along to accept the surrender. But as he did, the British Army, as it was heading into captivity and shocked, as shocked as were the colonists for that matter, uh, played The World Turned Upside Down, which was a song of the time, meaning they simply couldn't believe what had happened to them. And that's kind of where we are with the Ukraine war. Uh, the geopolitical ramifications of the Ukraine war are already immense. Usually major pieces on the geopolitical board don't move all that quickly and for decades don't move at all, and it's very easy to play chess when you know where every piece is and what it can do. We weren't there yet because we were coming to our new era and things were emerging, but war clarifies. It doesn't always cause things to happen, though it does that, but in a bolt of lightning, it clarifies things that have already happened, and suddenly everybody can see if they have but eyes to look at things. And this is what's happened over the war of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's been a clarity and a change, both. Going into the war, the outlines at the great power level of our new world were becoming clear. The basic division of the world was into two camps, the Chinese and the United States, who were the emerging dominant superpowers. And their superpower competition overlay an awful lot of other things going on, but that was the basic global superpower division. We were heading into a new Cold War with its nexus being the Indo-Pacific. 
But unlike the old Cold War and our new Cold War, the countries beneath the superpowers, the great powers, those without a global reach, but with an awful lot of power and the strategic autonomy to do as they like, the independence to do as they like, there were a number of these countries that were deciding which way to go. On the one hand, Japan, India, and the Anglosphere countries, the EU and Russia. These five were the great powers beneath the Americans and the Chinese. Again, the Indians, the Japanese, the Anglosphere countries, the EU, and Russia. Now, four of these five tilted generally toward America or neutrality, and one of these five, Russia, tilted toward either China or neutrality. But at the time of Ukraine, things had become a lot clearer than even that. And what we saw is the United States in firm alliance, largely because of Chinese mistakes, Chinese adventurism, and Xi Jinping's aggressive revisionist impatience with history, we saw the lineup really favoring the United States in that the Anglosphere countries, the English-speaking countries under AUKUS, the new treaty agreement defense alliance between Australia, the UK, and the US, the Anglosphere countries were lined up behind America firmly. Japan was firmly lined up behind the United States. It looked like India was firmly lined up behind the United States due to Chinese bullying of the Indians in the high Himalaya, where they've aggressively pushed on the line of actual control to take territory from India over the last couple of years, that these Asian powers were all lining up behind America. The EU was vacillating between neutralism and a pro-American position. And on the other side, Russia was trying to decide should it go its own way or should it maintain part of an alliance with China that could actually affect the overall status of the world. And that's kind of where we were before Ukraine. But three big things have changed. There have been three movements from that global outline, and they're all significant. On the one hand, the EU is now firmly back in the American camp and indeed has been woken up from its holiday from history. Suddenly the advantages of being in a transatlantic alliance with the Anglosphere, countries like Canada and the UK, and the superpower of the US are pretty self-evident, as is the advantage of having an army. Let's remember, incredibly, the German army has been ground down. The last time the Germans spent 2% of def on, on defense of GDP was in 1991, when my professional career was just beginning. And in fact, I was still in grad school. It's been that long since the Germans took their military seriously. And as of today, incredibly, if the German army was engaged in a fight like Ukraine, they could only manage to make it through ammunition for two to three days before they run out. So this is a totally hollowed out military. They have three days ammunition to fight a Ukraine style war. This is the result of two generations of listening to useful idiots like the current president, Frank Walter Steinmeier, who was foreign minister under Merkel, was really the architect of the Russia first policy, which was to push for neutralism while they maintained cheap Russian gas, the little approach. We don't care where things come from, we just care that they're cheap. And this is now biting the Germans very hard. And Germany is moving to rearm itself, as we've said. It's committed under Schultz to spend 2% of GDP and to catch up for this weapons discrepancy, which is shameful, they're free riding. They've agreed to spend a special pot of 100 billion euro to begin to make up the difference. But suddenly, all this is on board. And suddenly, having America and Article 5, the commitment of NATO to protect Europe, 
makes good sense. So Europe has been shocked out of its slumber and into a pro-American position. And that's the first major geostrategic change. It's gone from being neutralist to being firmly in the American camp. The mirror image of this are the Russians for very different reasons. In essence, and I wrote a piece that I'd commend you to read in Conservative Home this last week, the great newspaper of the village of Westminster, um, where all the British politicos get their news, and I love to write for them, and they're a great paper. They let me write about the Batman problem, and the Batman problem has always dogged the Russians going fully in with the Chinese. The Batman problem is simple. It's that the problem with an alliance with China is that someone has to be Batman and someone has to be Robin. They're not equal. This was the problem in the Cold War. When Stalin died, who had been seen as the venerated leader of communism, Chairman Mao was no longer set to be second banana to some lackey of Stalin. The lackey that emerged, of course, was Nikita Khrushchev from the Soviet power struggle. But any of them, he wasn't set to be second banana to any of them, given China's latent power capabilities. So instead, he went his own way over precisely this Batman problem. Well, if there were going to be a firm alliance between China and Russia before the Ukraine war, the problem was that the Russians were certainly going to have to be Robin to China's Batman. China is undoubtedly the rising superpower, the one with a significant economy, and the Chinese economy has actually increased in size remarkably 10 times from simply the year 2000. So this is a booming uh, peer competitor of the United States, and on the other hand, Russia is an aging gas station with nuclear weapons beset by corruption, poor demography, uh, a one-crop economy of oil and natural gas, and an alcoholism rates that are keeping that demography low, all kinds of social problems, and is nowhere near in the league of superpower. China, at best, is a declining regional great power. And so it was going to have to be Robin. And of course, Putin didn't like this because Putin's entire biography and indeed his power base and why he is so po popular. And people overlook this. The Independent Levada Center currently gives Putin an 83% approval rating, a stratospheric approval rating. And it does so because Putin is seen as the harbinger of great Russian nationalism. He's made Russia great again after the drunken bumbling czar Boris Yeltsin. He's restored Russian pride, shaved the boyar's beards by keeping the oligarchs in line, and restored Russian military pride through successful wars against Georgia in 2008, annexing Korea in 2014, and successfully intervening in the Syrian civil war starting in 2015. And so all of this has made Putin a very popular fellow, that for all the endemic structural economic problems, the Russian economy is the size of the state of Texas. That's it. Um, and my money's on Texas to eclipse that very soon as its upward trend rate is much higher economically. You see that Putin has maintained Russian great power status through military success. Being Robin to China's Batman doesn't exactly suit great Russian nationalism. And this has been the problem. No longer, because with failure of the blitzkrieg in Ukraine, with the economic sanctions, which are absolutely gutting Russia... They've been removed from the Swiss SWIFT system, so they can't trade with the West. In essence, $400 billion of their $600 billion in, in foreign exchange reserves have been frozen. This is a country on its economic last legs, and even its bread and butter, the export of oil and natural gas to Europe, within a three-year period, they're talking about doing away with us. And oil, which is the big moneymaker, 
may be done away with even quicker. And that is actually doable. And look for the Europeans to move on this front. And so the clock is ticking. The one crop economy may lose its one crop. And so Putin in this position, vengeful, chastened, humiliated, only has to look to China as his only option. And so has moved firmly as Robin to China's Batman into the Chinese orbit. So Europe, point one, has moved back into the American alliance system firmly. Russia, because of failure, has moved into the Chinese alliance system. And the third big move has been India. Although India remains resolutely the enemy of China, which has pushed it back over hundreds of square miles over the line of actual control in the high Himalaya, and is with the United States in joining the Quad and looking at the Indo-Pacific as America as its regional ally, this doesn't translate beyond that, and we've seen that by, by India's eloquent silence over Russia. Now, India has a long tradition of a non-aligned status in the Cold War where it tilted toward the Soviet Union, long-standing and close ties to the Russians, and it still gets most of its military wherewithal from the Russians, though increasingly it's also getting good military exports from Israel, the EU, particularly France and the United States. But Russia remains its largest military supplier and loath to bite the hand that presently feeds it. It's quietly tried to hew to a middle ground, a neutral ground over the Ukraine war to the surprise of many Westerners, including myself, as well as that of the United States. And so we've seen India say, well, yes, when we're in, in the Indo-Pacific, we'll side with you because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But frankly, beyond that, we're not very interested in working with you on a more global approach. And so we're not locked in. So you've seen India move to this middle position where it is a mix and vacillates, oscillating between neutralism over global issues such as Russia and a pro-American stance in the Indo-Pacific. So you have three major strategic moves over the course of one war. One, the Europeans are now firmly back in the American camp, in the American alliance. Two, the Russians are now firmly back in the Chinese camp, having solved the Batman problem where Russia is now Robin to China's Batman. And third, India has drifted toward a more neutralist position. That's an awful lot of change geostrategically for the price of one war. And yet that's where we are. And there are two ways to look at this. At the largest great power level, this is good news for the United States because you have on one side a league of democracies forming. You have the United States, the EU, the Anglosphere, and the Japanese all firmly in alliance with one another, even at the global level. And this is an incredible accomplishment and very positive. And certainly is now the dominant force in the world. The dominant status quo Western powers are ahead geostrategically of their rivals at the moment. And that's great news for the United States. On the other hand, the Chinese have only the Russians or the Indians precariously balancing in the middle between neutralism and a pro-American stance. Well, that's a global correlation of forces the United States can certainly live with because it's dominant in such a, a situation. However, let's look more closely beneath these great powers and we see a huge problem. The West is united in staring down both China and Russia but the rest of the world is not. Think of it this way. Of the great powers and superpowers that I've mentioned, only two really aren't Western. The Chinese since the 19th century and the Meiji Restoration, where they remarkably, I wrote about this into Dare More Boldly in my last book. Please read it. It's a great fun, great fun read. And I think you'd learn a lot 
But in To Dare More Boldly, I talk about the Meiji Restoration when the Chinese in the 19th century, fearing they were slipping behind the world, adopted in a, in a breakneck pace British parliamentary norms. And although this, of course, was overcome in the 1920s and 1930s, leading to World War II, this Western orientation was easily remembered after the war. And the West is not, an, is not a geographic location. It's a series of institutions, norms, and values. And the Japanese are firmly in the Western camp. On the other hand, India, although having many Western antecedents and being one of my favorite places in the world to visit, one of the most fascinating places I've ever been in a fascinating world, doesn't because it comes from this Nehru-driven anti-colonial tradition. So among the great powers in the world, the two that are not Western in orientation inherently are India and China, and neither of them side with the West over Russia. If you go down a level to regional powers throughout the world, things are even worse. The Turks have played a role as a neutral arbiter between Russia and the West. On the other hand, or in line with this, the Saudis have not jumped to the American defense, but after years of neglect and Biden snubbing the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, by refusing to even talk to him, Unsurprisingly, they haven't been eager, the Saudis, to help pump oil to keep oil prices down. So they have been neutralist, along with their friend, the UAE, another great regional power in the Middle East. So Turkey in the Middle East, the Saudis and the UAE have all hewed to a neutralist line, as has India. If you look at the rest of the world, you look at Brazil, not eager to condemn what's going on or get too involved. Neither is Indonesia you see a pattern forming here around the world. South Africa fits into this as well, actually saying remarkably positive things about the Russians. So beneath this Western unity, which at the great power level leaves the United States in a very comfortable, if not dominant position in dealing with the world, at the regional non-Western level, the rest of the world is hedging. The rest of the world is not throwing in its lot with the West, but is hedging looking at China and Russia as a possible alternative. From a Western point of view, this means two things need to happen in the upcoming period of time. One, we have to spend an awful lot of time and capital and patience winning the Indians to be fully on board as part of this League of Democracies. India is the pivot, the key factor in the Indo-Pacific that changes the correlation of forces in the American direction, and I would argue in the rest of the world as the coming great power. So spending a lot of time with India and looking at non-Western countries, as Jack Kennedy stressed, and trying to win them over to the American point of view, we're back to the future. We're back to what Kennedy advocated, and I indeed will call what we're talking about advocating a Kennedyite foreign policy, because it's at that developing world level that the United States is at its weakest. That's where the danger, if there will be one, comes from. But if the United States, in a positive way, can win over the developing world, the West is firmly on side, and that will lead to a world where the United States and a status quo power based on democratic norms and the norms that we love remains dominant. There's still work to be done, but following in JFK's footsteps, footsteps here would not be the worst thing that we could do. Thanks very much. I enjoyed talking about the geopolitical ramifications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the world turning upside down suddenly in a shocking way Three major maneuvers have changed, and I hope that we talk about these in greater detail as we go along. For those of you who have enjoyed this, please do subscribe. As I said just yesterday, our subscription rates are off the chart. 
And I'm sure we have the Ukraine war to thank for that. But this is our teachable moment as we become a little local newspaper to the world. On Monday, we have our Ukraine vlog. Tuesday is the culture. We're looking at Hitchcock films. Wednesday is the usual Around the World in 20 Minutes foreign policy podcast. Thursday usually is my friend J.L. Ryder looking at the society. And Friday, my other great friend Publius looking at the politics. Uh, this is a full-service newspaper to the world, and for that, we need your subscription, and we're only asking $70 a year, which is just $7 a month or half of an espresso a day. I measure things in espresso as I live here in Milan. For If you think we're worth half an espresso a day and what we're giving you, this unique direct contact between content providers and a community, this is the future of journalism. We're happy to be at the cutting edge of that, but for that, in an honor system, we need $70 a month to keep us going. So please do give and enjoy this and on to tomorrow and Publius. See you then.